Church Dads podcast. Join Mark Haas and Curtis Ketty as they discuss faith, family, liturgy, current events, and fatherhood. Be a part of the discussion by emailing churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. Now, here are the dads. Hello and welcome back to Church Dads. This is the Church Dads podcast. We meet monthly for discussion and we re-release the show um, the first Monday of every month. So here we are in October. Happy October, Curtis. Happy October. Good to be here. And is it getting more fall-like yet? <clears throat> it is. It is. It's been a little bit more cold little bit. I got to wear a sweater today, not a jacket, but at oh, least yeah. a sweater. We're both wearing sweaters. I didn't even notice. <clears throat> yep. I think it's uh, back when I was really skinny, I loved wearing sweaters because they. I felt like it added more bulk to my body. Now I have plenty of bulk, I feel, but I still like wearing sweaters. I don't know. Uh, it just makes me feel more safe, more oh, secure. Good. Great. I like it when my clothes cuddle with me. You know what mm. I mean? Yes. Good, good. Too much information. Yeah. Well, hey, today's show, um, we have an interesting one for you, I think. And we've kind of themed this episode. We've called it, um, well, it's sort of the idea uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, building our houses on sand versus building our houses on rock. And, uh, you know, there's this giant elephant that we've all read about and heard about and seen about a million times, and we thought it would be silly for us not to comment because of the nature of our show, and that's the uh, uh, somewhat of a crisis in the church, not the entire church, but... It's a storm. It's a storm. It is, and so um, we think fatherhood certainly can play um, a role in this in a positive way, and so for this first segment, we thought we would... um, talk a little bit about fatherhood on a personal level and how um, we as dads, um, you know, we have triumphant moments and sometimes we don't. And um, to what degree, I don't know, but I thought we would reflect first on this first segment about fatherhood and we as parents um, and how maybe sometimes um, we don't always... I don't know, live up to our own standard or fall short of whatever bar we've set for ourselves. Um, I know I am certainly still trying to get better at this every day. (laughs) Um, But anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, as many times as I succeed, about 10 times more than that, I fail. Mm -hmm. And I think that I knew parenting was going to be hard, but I just didn't really grasp the sort of devastating nature of parenting in the sense of, I remember Amy looked at me once and said, you know why this is so difficult? It's because the kids are literally ruining our lives. <laughs> like they're ruining the life that we had built up for ourselves. All of our defense mechanisms, all of the our comfort mechanisms to deal with our own, you know, personality issues all of those things, all of our stuff and the, the things we've tried to keep nice and tidy and in good condition, all of those things, the kids come in and literally destroy it. Like, they disrupt it and destroy it. And it's actually a good thing. You know, like, we needed those things shaken up and destroyed. 
you know, we needed to stop looking inward and start to look outward as a husband and wife, you know, but um, it's not, it's not pleasant, you know, and that's, that's uh, what holiness is like, you know, the the process of sanctification is not um, always pleasant. It's painful. Mm -hmm. Unless a grain of wheat dies, it, uh, when it does die, it uh, yields much fruit. That's kind of Mm -hmm. what you're alluding to, is that we have to die to self daily, almost. Right. And uh, I just, the other day, was talking with, um, um, I do music for the Catholic school once a week, and so I went down there and was talking with one of the choir members. And we're trying to always build up our uh, list of, our network of babysitters, you know how it goes. And so she's like, oh, I finally remembered to get you this uh, business card, gave me the business card, and... She's like, oh, and you know, I've CPR trained and certified this and that and the other, and I'm like, wow, you're like, <laughs> you're uh, you're you're more qualified to watch kids than I am. So anyway, um. you know, being a parent is like having like a homeless sick person in your house, like 24 hours a day. You know, like that is our ministry. Like Amy and I hardly have time for each other. You have to build in that time for each other in your marriage because you are so focused on, you know, meeting the needs of these bottomless pits of need, you know, Mm -hmm. who just don't understand privacy. They don't understand all these things. And it's a good thing. You know, we are learning to be selfless but we're, it's almost against our will that we're learning to be selfless. You know, we don't need to go into a room for three hours and lock the door and tell our kids to quiet down because we're praying, trying to become more holy. It's actually out in the living room with the kids crawling all over you and screaming and you just, you know, loving them. That is where you're becoming more holy. That is where you're encountering Christ. You know, mm-hmm. I, I want to go away for a weekend or a, a month to like a monastery and like behind a locked door and be like, now finally I can grow in holiness and become a disciple of Christ. And I feel like if I did that, the very first day, Christ would appear to me and be like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah. And uh, you're, you're alluding to something Pope Francis said um, not that long ago. I think it was back in May. And he's talking about parents and he says, I asked them if they play with their children. Values are so transmitted through playing with children, but do you have time to get down on the floor and play with your son, your daughter? This is big. Never lose this. Mm. Know how to spend time with your children. This language of love is able to transmit all of the values of the faith. And so you mentioned our children kind of being like these needy homeless people or or whatnot. And it's (laughs) (laughs) it's just interesting that God the Father reveals his son to us in the form of this helpless child that would otherwise die without parents, right? And and you you have to imagine that, you know, Mary and Joseph went through this um, figuring it out process. Of course, they're doing it on the run, literally, and uh, you can only imagine. But if I were a god, like if I were to send a Jesus to the world, I don't know, I might do it like as a some king or some dude who could just come and solve all the problems right away. Thor. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> With the hammer. And so that's not the case. And our homes are um, are are also imperfect places, and it's very much like the church. 
you know, so many times I think we think the church is supposed to, supposed to be this heavenly place on earth. Well, the the church is not um, a paradise for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Church and, on earth in particular, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So the church is itself sometimes an imperfect place, um, but it, it's, it's sort of our vehicle to heaven. It's our vehicle to holiness. <clears throat> yes. Um, the church is our mother. I mean, the church is actually referred to as a mother. Mm-hmm. And a mother is not just about um, cuddling on the couch, you know? <laughs> you know, when I see how our my kids react to Amy, my their mother, my wife, and and that relationship, you know, it becomes clear, you know, just that relationship that I have with the church sometimes. Like, I need, I need a timeout, you know, every once in a while, and, you know, I need, I need to grow. Um, so, like, I'm, I'm thinking of specific times where, where I have messed up, and I've messed up so many times. It's like, well, what, what time could I share on a podcast? <laughs> and uh, I remember once, you know, I I struggle with losing my temper. Like I'll get really angry, and it's almost like the yeah, you too. He's <laughs> you're raising your hand. You know, when I get angry, it's almost comical because I'm so uh, um like I I make no impact. You know, like so I I kick and scream like a little like a little toddler myself. And I know I'm being an idiot, but like I just can't seem to control it. This like anger. I'll, I'm getting better. But I remember once, you know, I got a, a bill in the mail that I was not expecting. And it was like upwards of $800. You know, it was like a surprising medical bill that we had not budgeted for. And I walk in the room. I'm opening up the bill. The kids are running around. They're screaming. You know, they're just being themselves. They're just playing. They want me to play with them, too. Mm-hmm. I open up the bill, and I see that it is this astronomical amount. And I suddenly explode, you know. But I don't explode like, I can't believe this bill. Like, I physically explode. I take my foot, and with all of my might, I kick the couch, which is in front of me. I just kick it like it's a soccer ball and immediately sprain my ankle doing it and, like, fall onto the ground gasping in pain so like the bill flutters from my hand i fall on the ground i'm screaming out in agony and pain and anger and the kids are just like you know blank faces staring at me in horror and amy's like what happened and you know i can't even speak i like crawl my way into the bedroom to just like lay down and just kind of like get a hold of myself well you know here i am in the bed and I asked Amy to bring me William, my oldest. He's about four at the time. And Amy brings him in. And I have him sit on the bed next to you. I'm laying on the bed in agony. You know, I have ice on my ankle. I'm like, William, I made a very bad choice. You know, I got angry and afraid. And I kicked the couch. And God has put me on a timeout. <laughs> and... I'm very, very sorry that I made the bad choice. Will you forgive me? And William's like, yes, I forgive you. And we gave each other a little hug. Well, months and months go by. I heal from my ankle. 
and I lose my temper. And, you know, the same thing happens. I, I would sit them down. I go to each kid and sit them down and apologize and, you know, ask for their forgiveness. And, uh, well, Amy gives me a call and she says that something happened in the house that, um, William had lost his temper and had, you know, freaked out his brother, Caleb, who's very sensitive, and Caleb was, you know, beside himself, just so upset. And that now Amy had didn't say anything to William yet. You know, she's just trying to calm Caleb down. Suddenly William comes in, and he gets down on his knees next to Caleb, and he puts his hands on Caleb's shoulder, and he says, Caleb, I'm so sorry that I made a bad choice. And I got angry. Will you please forgive me? And Caleb says, yes, I forgive you. And they gave each other a hug. And Amy's like watching this. And, you know, she called me to tell me because she was like, listen, you know, we didn't teach them to do this. But it was through our own failures that they learned what it meant to have that true reconciliation. You know, so they they were acting out what they had experienced. They're acting out that mercy. That's so good. That's so good. And it's so important what you just described about how we as parents who are supposed to be the know-it-alls and got it all together, at least by the way we look all the time, even though we're like duck feet under (laughs) the water. Um, We've got to be humble and to be able to admit when we're wrong to even our kids you know, that For is sure. That is so important, and uh, it seems like a weird concept because you don't want to admit you're doing something wrong as a parent to your own kids. But once you do it, and like you described, see the result of it. It's just, it's it's like you said, it's like they wouldn't have learned it if we hadn't have screwed up. Yeah. And so I think that trickles across everything when you see a screw up. It's like. Would we have learned those things had they had not screwed up? It's like in the last episode of Lord of the Rings, where the ring would have been destroyed if there wasn't this horrible sure. golem creature. You know, I was reading somewhere, and they said, you know, loving your enemies, loving your enemies becomes much more difficult when your enemies live in your own home <laughs> and they run around and, <laughs> and do things to you yeah. and to your stuff. It beca- it's like, oh yeah, they, these are my enemies in a way. But these are also, you know, my instruments of sanctification. These are also persons of equal dignity that have a lot to teach me about what it means to be human, about what it means to be a child of God. So, yeah, we don't want failures, but we know that we do fail, and thank God that He is a God of mercy and can work all things together for good for those who who love Him. Amen. Good, good. This is Church Dad's podcast, and uh, in our next segment, we'll be we sort of just reviewed uh, shortcomings of fatherhood, specifically uh, household daddies like we are. In the next segment, we'll talk a little bit more broadly about our church, you know, spiritual fathers, perhaps, and um, how it all kind of still applies across the board. So stick with us. This is the Church Dad's podcast. Join the show discussion. Email the dads at churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. Follow the dads at facebook.com slash 
Church Dads Podcast. Be a part of a revolution to empower the Christian family. This is the Church Dads Podcast. Welcome back to Church Dads. Building our homes on sand, building our homes on rock. And the home we want to talk about is our larger home, the house of the Lord, the church. Um, And I would argue that our church is built on rock. A lesser church would have crumbled long before 2018 if it were built on sand. And so what's the hot topic today? The hot topic is scandal within the church and, um, you know, abuse within the church. Um, And so I think it would be who of us to step back a little bit and look at um, scandal and what what is scandal and what what it is, what it isn't. Um, Curtis, you had a, a lovely thought to the word scandal. Right. Well, I like words. Mm-hmm. I like to know what words mean and where they come from. You know, we're not just inventing the English language from day to day. Like, there's a long, rich tradition of where our words come from, and scandal is one of those. I mean, scandal comes from the Greek word uh, scandalon, which means, literally means, a trap, or a snare, or a stone that causes someone to stumble. A scandal means a trap, and it's a trap that ensnares or causes someone to stumble. So when we talk about scandal in the church, we're talking about... um, something, an attitude or a behavior in the church that causes another to do evil or to fall away from their faith. And so what's taking place when we talk about the church scandal? Um, we're talking about a concerted effort by the enemy, by the devil himself, who has orchestrated a giant trap that is meant and directed to not those who perpetuated perpetuated the scandal, not even to those victims who suffered um, like like these immense crimes, but it's a trap directed to all of us, to the body of Christ in the church. It's a trap. Um, it's, It's a temptation to walk away, to walk away from the rock, which is Christ, which is what our faith is built upon, to walk away from that. So, this is why Jesus would lay such a, a heavy curse upon those who would lead others to, to lead, fall away from their faith. He actually says it would be better for that person if a millstone were tied around their neck and they were tossed into the sea. I can't, I, I can't think of too many other such visceral images as like, let's tie this gigantic, huge, heavy stone around this person's neck and throw them into the sea. This is something that you don't often see like in a cross-stitch pattern above somebody's fireplace, like the words of Christ, you know, like this, really this horrible fate that he's saying. It's so serious because it's, it's talking about these dire eternal consequences. So when we're talking about the church scandal, the scandal within the church, Oh my gosh, what a scandal, what a trap, because the very people that we are meant to trust, these, these shepherds who have consecrated supposedly their whole life and soul to Christ, turn around. Not only are they hypocritical, you know, they're teaching moral teaching and then going behind closed doors and doing exactly the opposite, but they're actually, you know, hurting others. They're actually committing crimes and then covering up those crimes 
you know, and these are the people that we had placed all of our trust in. Mm-hmm. You know, they're our spiritual fathers. I mean, it is, it is vile. It is horrifying. It is indefensible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can see it, the wave of people who have decided, you know, that the church has done this horrible thing to me, and so why do I even go to Mass? I'm leaving. You know, we see Mass attendance going down. We see, like, giving going down. People are angry, and rightfully so. Um, so we are, we're living in the midst of a huge, tumultuous storm. The wind and the rain are beating down upon each of our individual homes, in a sense, on, on our hearts. And we are discovering just what we built those homes upon. The you know? rain is falling hard. And uh, the Venerable Fulton Sheen, um, speaking of rain, he, he described the church as sort of like Noah's Ark. And if you can imagine yourself on the ark, what the experience might be like, it may not be so pleasant. It may like <laughs> smell disgusting, and you got all these animals maybe that don't like each other, and they're sure. um, it probably wouldn't be a comfortable place. But um, the answer may not necessarily be, "Well, I'm just going to jump off the ark and take my chances body surfing," you know? Right. Well, and therein lies another another very important point that we really need to highlight. You know, because I hear all the time, you know, the church has failed us. The church, um, you know, betrayed us. The church has been uh, guilty of all of these horrific crimes, of covering things up. And, you know, that perspective is part of the trap. Because the church is not the perpetrator of these crimes. You know, sure, we see like this visible institutional um, church, this organization, which has been complicit in many cases in all of these crimes. Absolutely. But when we talk about the church, we're talking about the body of Christ. So, you know, it was actually an old professor of mine who uh, reflected on this, and he said, really, there's just there's two ways that we can look at this and respond to the scandal. It's like, one, the church is guilty of these horrific crimes. So the response is to separate from the church, and to defend the victims of the crimes. And that makes a lot of sense. It's like, okay, if the church is, is the one who's doing the, like these horrible things, we need to separate from the church immediately and defend those, those victims that the church is attacking. I mean, that's what many people are doing. And I, I totally understand and respect, because if you have that perspective, yeah, that's of course, that's what you would do out of compassion and love. You would want to defend the victims from this horrible monster, which is the church in their minds. But there's a second perspective, which is the true perspective. And that is that the church is the victim of horrific crimes. And the response is to defend her from the attack of the, the assaulters. So, okay, the first, the first perspective and response you know, is true if the clergy equal the church. So the first, where you leave the church to protect the victims, that's where if you look at the church, you see the church is the clergy. It's the bishops, the priests, the pope, you know, and everybody else is just kind of sort of Catholic, you know. Right. But these are that's the church. And so to leave the church in this scenario is like a noble thing since the institution has been corrupted. So leaving this corrupted institution is noble. But that second perspective, the true perspective, you know, is it, when you look at it, it's that all bap- all the baptized 
are the real Catholics. Like all the baptized. And the degree of membership is actually not measured by am I a priest, am I a bishop, am I a cardinal, but is how holy am I? You know, it's holiness. It's as you become more conformed to Christ. You know, so that's not connected to the hierarchy. Right. You know, that is your heart. And so that means that the predators, the attackers, by their crimes, are separating themselves from the church. From the body of Christ. And so I, I remember when all this stuff was first breaking out, somebody looked at me and said, you know, how are we ever going to survive this? How are we going to survive this? And the thing that, that popped into my head immediately was Christ carrying the cross through the streets of Jerusalem and imagining if I went up to him and said, Lord, how are you going to survive this? And hearing him say, I'm not. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I'm not going to survive this, but I will rise again. What you see as evil now, I will turn for good. And in a similar way, it's like, we are not going to survive this. The church as it is now that you can see will not survive this. I mean, this scandal has been going on for decades now, you know, and it's it seems it's just when it seems to be getting better, it's worse. So, I mean, in a way, we will not survive just like in my house, I am not going to survive. <laughs> you know, my life is being rebuilt. Well, the church is constantly being rebuilt from one glory to another. You know, it's going through changes. It's, it's being purified. It's being made more holy. And uh, this scandal, this, this storm, you know, this is, this is not a time to leave the church. It's the time to pick up our crosses and follow after Christ and say, yes, you know, we have been betrayed, but we will follow Christ all the way to the bitter end if necessary, you know? Yeah. And it's even our duty um, to sort of pick up the cross and to have a voice. You might, I mean, Thomas Aquinas, um, he said, if, if the faith were endangered, a subject ought to rebuke his prelate, or uh, a faithful person should rebuke the bishop, I guess you might say, even publicly. Hence, Paul who was Peter's subject, rebuked him in public on account mm. of the imminent danger of scandal. So mm. it's it's not like, like you said, the clergy are the church and we're just all observers. We are, as you pointed out, Romans 12, we are all the body of Christ. And that's sometimes while you hear on Catholic radio, there'll be prayers offered in reparation, or we'll be praying for the victims, we'll be praying for the... Um, um, these specific fallen away clergy members. It's like, why would we pray for them? Well, of course we would, because we can't function without all the parts of the body. We can't cut off a part and function properly. Um, so, you know, th- those are great points, and especially th- it's, the one, it's the premise that I have a problem with, is when somebody says something like, well, these are these are, um, you know, these are priests, and they should be held to a higher standard, and that uh, they should be, but I don't. I don't know that God holds them to a higher standard. Like the the bar is the same for everyone, right? Uh, I w- I would disagree. I would say that to to those who have been given much, much is expected. You know, that's a scriptural a role. You know, I mean, that's a scriptural principle. You know, the the idea that when you've been given these gifts, you are going to be expected of more, and we see it in the Old Testament. You know, the kings. The kings in Israel were far more responsible 
for their crimes than the individual people of Israel. It's because they were they were the representatives. And you know, these priests, they have been ordained by God. They have lay they've they've given their soul over as they're consecrated to him in a specific way. And they are priests forever. Priests forever in the order of Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. I am a husband until death. They are a priest forever. You know, so I think that there is a higher standard that they're being called to. And as much as, yeah, you're right, you know, we don't want to lose anyone. But in this case, I mean, they, they're they the ones who cut themselves off. Okay, I'm following you, and I I do agree. I just, I, I would hate for the thought process to be, well, those are the priests, they should be held higher standard. It's like they're, th- you know, throw the first stone, right? Like, okay. um, you know, they're held to be a higher standard. Um, I think... When you mentioned you were talking about um, um, the stumbling blocks, and uh, you're you're kind of alluding to sin, and so these were the these were the made known public things. But I think we've got obviously millions and millions of other things that we only sure. know we only know ourselves to be true, that we take into the sacrament of confession, hopefully. Sure. And so all of us, I think, we need to look inward. Um. So that's sort of where I was going with that. Um, right. And yeah, we all, we all suffer. We all sin. You know, we all have to face the consequences. I'm just asking for them to face it too. And that's what I think has been, been lacking. You know, they, they've done this with impunity. You know, they've done these things, and then, you know, they've kind of gone behind closed doors and worked it out. And it's like, no, you did not work it out. And, and you know, the blood of Abel cries up from the ground, you know, cries out to me from the ground, and there will be there there will be consequences, um, and it's just it's such a horrible tragic time. But like I said, it's it, it. There's no part of me that ever thinks that I should walk away from the church, because the church needs us more now than ever. The holiness of the laity of the baptized to stand up, and you know, defend our fellow members, our fellow members of the body of Christ from these attackers who are very much attacking from the outside because they're the branches that have been cut off from the vine. They cut themselves off, you know? So, I don't know, Mark. You get me... This this get me fired up. Uh, hey, and you <laughs> should be. This is... this is. I would... There's no other time than to be Catholic is today. And it's... This is when we need all of the body of Christ. And so, that we'll get into that a little bit on our next segment. We're going to talk about building our house on rock. And uh, certainly... Uh, we have a church that is built on rock. I just want to end the segment with words from St. Peter. That's from 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised that a trial by fire is occurring among you, as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice exultantly. This is Church Dads. Like what you hear? Have a question concerning family, fatherhood, or faith? Email the dads at churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. Be a part of the discussion as we seek to strengthen our Christian witness in the home. This is the Church Dads Podcast. Welcome back to Church Dads Podcast. A uh, quick shout out to Ron 
well, I don't want to use names. Ron from my church, who um, does our voiceover work. Do you hear that awesome voice? This is Church Dads. Yeah, it's the gravitas. It yeah. makes me feel more important than I really I am. It, it raised our show up like ten notches when Ron did For that. Sure. So we come back. We come back to you building our church on rock. Of course, we would not want to build our house on sand. It would plummet to the ground. And um, um, Jesus speaks about this. And um, so I thought we would just start by the actual gospel passage. This is Gospel of Matthew. Um, Verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And then the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat upon that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, I think what makes me think of this passage in particular when talking about all of this stuff, and we've alluded to it, is the idea that in the storm, when the storm comes, and you feel your faith crumbling— it is a great litmus test for you to look in your heart and say, well, what am I really building my faith upon? You know, what is my faith built on? Um, because if it's built on anything but Christ, it will fall. Um, faith is trust. Faith is trust in a person. Robert Cardinal Seurat um, says this. He said, doubt is a moment of purification and strengthening. Hence, just one question arises— do we still believe when the night remains desperately dark? Do we keep hoping even beyond the easy times? Faith is trust, or else it does not exist. Faith is trust. And he said that in his book, God or Nothing, which I highly recommend, by Robert Cardinal Seurat. St. Saint Basil, or St. Basil, however you want to say it, he said, but lay your foundations upon a rock, that is, lean upon the faith of Christ, so as to persevere immovable in adversity, whether it come from man or God. No matter what happens, no matter what happens, you are firmly built upon the person of Jesus Christ. If my faith is in the social justice teaching of the church, I'm like, wow, I love how the church is so loving. You know, I love how they're out there feeding the poor. I love, how, I love how the church teaches that we're all equal in the eyes of God. I love how the church teaches dot, 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 dot. I'm not saying any of that is bad, but if that's what you're building your house on, then when the church seems to fail you, when people in the church who are in positions of authority fail you, then you will walk away. But if it's on Christ, on who Christ is, and that Christ, you know, is the source of your faith, that relationship, then it doesn't matter how strong the wind and the rain or the floods are. I mean, you will cling to him because he's the only source. It's like St. Peter said, who else should we go? Who, to whom else should we go? You have the words of everlasting life. You know, that temptation will come, but you will not succumb because it's, that, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. Um. That reading, by the way, happened like a week, maybe two <laughs> weeks after this recent thing um, blew up the news. Oh, right. 
like it, in the liturgical year. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Lord, to whom and, do we go? That reading, yeah. You know, looking at some of the background interpretations over the centuries for this particular reading about the House of the Rock and the Sand, I thought mm-hmm. it was really interesting. St. Thomas Aquinas, he looks at it in his commentary on St. Matthew, and he says, It ought to be stated that the devil never firstly attempts in greater things, but firstly in lesser things, and then proceeds to greater things. The rain is the temptations of the flesh or pleasure. This is how Thomas is interpreting it. Sure. The floods are temptations of the world, that possessions, and the winds are the temptation of the devil, pride. So it's like it starts with the rain, and then it builds to the floods, and then builds to the winds. And similarly, like in our life, you know, why tempt you to murder when, you know, gambling will do, <laughs> you know, whatever, like when cards will do. This is something C.S. Lewis said in the Screw Tape Letters. The devil comes to us in these smaller ways first. And if we resist, then the bigger ways. And if we resist, then they're even bigger ways. And if we're not built upon Christ, we will soon discover just how weak we are. We might be good at resisting the smaller temptations, but that will just up the ante. And eventually, it will only be Christ that we can cling to. It can only be him. Nothing in our intellect, no list of beliefs, no mottos, no organizations or apostolates, you know, no, you know, my church is a really loving community and I love my pastor and he gives great homilies. Well, what happens when that pastor moves and you get a pastor who preaches horrible homilies and your community is totally unwelcoming and like the music is the worst music you've ever heard in the world. You know, what do you do then? You know, do you go to the mega church down the road? Like, I mean, we're... You know, no, of course not, because we find our faith in Christ, especially particularly in Christ's real presence, which he gives to us in the Eucharist. You know, that's how he is with us always, even to the end of the age. So, I mean, if your faith is not founded there, then your house will fall. And and I love that last line, and great was the fall of it. <laughs> yeah. And he mentions building it on a rock, and he's sort of setting himself up, right? I mean, what does he say later uh, um, in Matthew chapter 16? He f- builds a church on a rock. Yeah. Um, oh, man. It's and, so good. Yeah. And you were right. You're right. We have to—we really do have to turn our eyes to Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? We have to run, like, sprint to the sacraments. Mm. Um of course, to receive the Eucharist, but we have to run to the sacrament of confession. We have to um, get rid of these sinful roadblocks, these these little scandals in our own hearts that only we know about. We've got to get them out of the eyes of the devil, um, because then he can't see them. He's blind to them. Um, uh, when you're talking about founding the church on Peter, mm-hmm. Peter means rock, sure. right? And, of course, St. Basil Basil just said that, you know, the rock is Christ. Of course, it's not Peter in himself who is the rock. You know, it's only in his being united to Christ that, you know, that we can build this foundation. I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton I just pulled up. It's from his um, work, Heretics. He says this, When Christ, at a symbolic moment, was establishing his great society, he chose for its cornerstone neither the brilliant Paul nor the mystic John, but a shuffler, a snob, a coward, in a word, a man. And upon this rock he has built his church, and the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. 
All the empires and the kingdoms have failed because of this inherent and continual weakness. They were founded by strong men upon strong men. But this one thing, the historic Christian church, was founded upon a weak man. And for that reason, it is indestructible. For no chain is stronger than its weakest link. Oh, that's great. Oh, man. Yeah, it's like, here's the weak man, yeah. Peter. Forget about, and forget about Peter and Judas for a second. They all, they all sort of, they've all failed, okay? Um, I'm looking to the Passion. Uh, maybe John. Okay, John was there. Where are the other 11? You know, mm-hmm. they didn't even show up. So Jesus or, ordains these 12 guys. It's like they all failed. Um, yeah. So it's not like failure in uh, our leaders. It's from the beginning. You know, there's, there's that beautiful moment after Peter denies Jesus three times, it says that Jesus is being taken out of um, in the high priest's house on his way to Pilate. And he's, he's bound, his hands are bound, he's being taken out. Peter has just finished denying Jesus the third time, and it says Jesus came out and looked at Peter. And that's it. He looked at Peter, and Peter begins to weep. And, you know, that transformative experience where Peter finally sees himself, finally. He sees himself. He sees how weak he is. Just hours before, he was saying, I'll die with you. I will go with you to the death. You know, I'll never abandon you. And now here he is. He's just denied Jesus. Jesus is being taken off to his death, and he looks at Peter, and Peter finally sees himself. And really, I mean, that is what we all should be experiencing on a constant basis. Sure. We all have these false images set up of ourselves, and it's in our failures that we encounter our, who we really are and how much we actually need Christ. So, like, the sacrament of reconciliation is that moment where Christ looks at us, and we see the darkness in our own heart, and we do weep, you know, we and we are changed. And Jesus forgives Peter and empowers him, and he comes back, and he's been yeah. denied three times, and, of course, Jesus goes to Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, 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 of course. Do you love me, number two? Yeah, 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 do you, do you love me, number three? And so he just mirrors this as like a forgiveness empowerment to Peter. Like, thank God, Mark, that we have the sacraments and the sacrament of reconciliation. You know, I grew up, and I was taught that I could just go directly to God um, for forgiveness. And you can, Absolutely for many sins. But for the really serious sins, these these like sins that break communion, that really damage in, a, in an irrevocable way, you know, your relationship with God, like you can't do anything to fix it on your own. I mean, the idea of this, the sacrament of reconciliation is yeah, so powerful. You know, speaking about confession, um, we're going to talk about that in our next segment uh, a bit more in our Q&A, oh. as one of our questions is about confession. But... Um, so Cardinal Seurat is kind of speaking to this me culture that we live in and how life is what we make it, and I want to do what makes me feel good. And um, He says, without God, we create a church in our own image for our little needs, likes, and dislikes. Fashion takes hold of the church, and the illusion of sacredness becomes perishable, a sort of outdated medication. And he's saying, put Jesus Christ in the center of the room. No matter what room you're in, I think more specifically, he's always, he's very good at speaking about the liturgy and the mass. Um, but it, it, I think it holds true to any 
any situation you're in that we have to keep Christ the center um, and not deviate our eyes and to look at Jesus as we've just denied him three times and oh, rec- man. recognize that. There's another moment in Peter's life um, where he had to look at Jesus. Do you know what, what part I'm going to tell you? Mm, was this when... When is he going to come? What at what hour? When cock crow? When da da da? No, no, no. Before that. That's also good. Long before that, he has to he's look sinking. at Christ, and he, he's right. There so, we go. You see, he's they're in the storm. That's right. On the boat, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water, and they think he's a ghost. And Peter, in his you know ineptitude, cries out this very risky thing. He says, "If you are, if you really are Jesus, then tell me to come out and join you on the water." And Jesus says, "Come on out and join me." And so now he has to put his money where his mouth is, and remarkably, he actually takes his foot out of the boat and places it in the stormy water and begins to walk towards Christ. But as he gets further away from the comfort of the boat and closer to Christ, he begins to notice the wind and the waves and the storm around him. And when he takes his eyes off of Christ, he begins to sink, which then, of course, initiates the shortest prayer in all of Scripture— Lord, save me, or Lord, help me. And uh, Christ immediately is there to grab his hand. And an interesting detail, not often noticed by scholars, is that it then says Peter and Jesus then walked back to the boat together. It can be easy to, to start to be worried about the storm itself, and that is a surefire way to sink. But if in the midst of the storm we keep our eyes on Christ, and we keep our eyes, you know, focused upwards in prayer, in humility, running to him, you know, then that is the only way we will not sink. But if we are sinking, if you are feeling cynical, if you are feeling like your faith has been shaken and you are leaving, you feel like you don't want to go back to church, you don't want to see another priest, you don't want to do any of this stuff, then, you know, I encourage you to pray that prayer, you know, the shortest prayer in Scripture, the prayer of St. Peter, Lord, save me, Lord, save me, I'm sinking. And I guarantee you that never has it been known, you know, that those who cry out for help do not receive it. This is the Church Dads podcast. Stick with us because in our final quadrant of the show, <laughs> we're going to bring up some Q&A, some lovely questions, and hopefully attempt to answer them with some good answers. So uh, we'll be back. This is the Church Dads podcast. Join the show discussion. Email the dads at churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. Welcome back to Church Dads Podcast. Good to have all of you. And uh, we're moving into our final segment here, and it's a nice, lovely little Q&A session. Three... It's been a while since we had a Q- I know. Q&A Isn't session. Isn't this great? Um, if you should like to participate in the Q&A, send us a question to churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. So our first question today deals with some of what we've already been talking about, and that has to do with confession. Um, as this question reads, why confess to a priest? It's a good question. Why confess to a priest? Um, well, like the first, like, I mean, the short answer is because that's how Jesus set it up. You know, that's how Jesus set it up. And you can go to the Gospel of John, um, chapter 20, 
And, you know, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he appears to his disciples. He says, peace be with you, which is significant. He, he, he walks through a locked door, which is significant. And he says, you know, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathes upon them. And he says, go and preach the gospel. No. You know, does he say, go out and, you know, write a serve the stuff. poor? <laughs> write, write some stuff? He says, it's very significant what he says here. He breathes on them, which the last time we saw someone breathing, uh, saw God breathing on someone was in the Garden of Eden with Adam, breathing life into Adam. So this is a signifying of a new era, a new creation. He breathes in the Holy Spirit and he says, those sins you forgive are forgiven and those sins you retain are retained. He says, go and forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So keep that in mind. You know, only God can forgive sins. But he is giving them his own authority to go out and forgive sins. And that they now have the ability to forgive or retain. What does that mean? Retain sins? Not forgive sins? They have that authority also? This sort of binding and loosing? This is really, really significant. So this is in Scripture. Now, the, the, church, would, the church teaches that we can go to God directly for forgiveness for our sins. But that there are some sins that are so grave that they actually yeah, it, kill us spiritually. And it's not, it's, the question is why we confess to a priest, and it's a valid question. And in a way, we do, but in a way, it's not the priest. Right. In a big way, it's not the priest, it's Jesus himself there. And Absolutely. There's, the Church always uses a Latin phrase called impersona Christi. It's mm. the priest there, looks like him, it's his hands, but he's standing in the person of Christ. This happens um, when he's changing bread into the body. This happens when he is in the confessional hearing and um, absolving sins. And God wants us to experience that forgiveness. So going back, you know, I grew up Protestant in a Protestant tradition. There was no confession. I just prayed to God. I would do something horrible, and usually, you know, I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at, and I felt so horrible, and I would pray to God in my room, God, please forgive me, and I would receive silence. I would have to sort of muster it up in myself. I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm forgiven. And people joke about Catholic guilt. Let me tell you about Protestant guilt. <laughs> Let me tell you what that's like. Well, the first time I actually went to confession for real, mm-hmm. and I un- like unloaded, I like laid it all out there. And in this case, I was face-to-face with the priest, um, which is not the, the, the first option. That's like the second option. The first option is totally anonymous, behind a screen. Right. And that's that's a good way too. But I was face to face with the priest, so it was even brought home to me even more strong. I'm looking him in the eye, and he looks at me, and for the first time in my life, for the first time in my life, I heard the words, you know, you are absolved of your sin. James chapter five, verse sixteen. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed. So question well, I'll let you go, Curtis. Okay, so this question um, is asking, you know, where does the church find this idea of purgatory? You know, is it in Scripture? Uh, You know, what is purgatory? Is it a place? Well, purgatory um, is scriptural. So we'll jump to the Old Testament. In the second book of Maccabees, chapter 12, there was like this huge battle, like thousands of people slaughtered kind of a thing. And the Jewish people 
uh, were fighting and some of them were slain. And so, in, for instance, in verse 40, they, they went to these Jewish people and they found, as they're rolling them over, these dead guys, they found these like um, these charms under their tunic, these like good luck charms. So anyway, they're using these idols instead of turning completely to God in their faith. And so what do the, li- the, the living, surviving Jewish people, soldiers do? They start praying for them. Well, why would they pray for people who are in hell? It's not going to do anything. Why, why would they wouldn't offer prayers for people who are in heaven? They're already in heaven. So they're praying for people who have died um, in hopes that God will have mercy on their souls for having these little trinkets. Uh, but more specifically in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we look at this purging-like fire that Paul's talking about. And he basically he's saying um, in uh, verse 13, those built in an imperfect way will be tested after death. Um, the righteous one will escape through flames. Um, and so essentially we're building up righteous things in our life, um, and those will be, you know, kind of the, 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 the righteous metal things we've built up in life that will test the, test the flames. If we build up um, things just of straw and of hay, it's going to burn up, it's going to be gone immediately. Right. I mean, the, the important thing is to say that purgatory is not a place, but a state. And I think the Catechism makes that clear, that purgatory is a state, a temporary state, purging mm-hmm. or cleansing the Spirit. Like, it's a temporary state. And, you know, we don't know how long it takes, but we know that it will come to an end. There's only two, two places in the end, uh, heaven with God, hell apart from God. That's it. Purgatory is not a third place. It's, I like to think of it as like a heaven's bathroom, you know, like you're <laughs> cleaning up before you go to the feast. And we believe that those who are in purgatory are not dead, but are more living than we are in some sense because they are actually closer to God. They've sort of shed some of the, the weaknesses you know, the darkening of the intellect that we have here right now. And so they are all still part of the church, the church suffering, we call those in purgatory. We have church triumphant in heaven, church suffering in purgatory, church militant here on earth, or the pilgrim church. And we're all one church. And if I can pray for you when you're going through a hard time, and that makes a difference, then I certainly can pray for them as they go through this state of purgation, whatever that's like. I don't know, but I know they can't pray for themselves right now. Sure. Um, So I'll pray for them. So I think that uh, it's really just a semantic thing. Yes. Interesting, Mark. Not too many people know that C.S. Lewis, a Protestant, um, believed in purgatory. He just saw it as a logical, uh, spiritual truth. It's like, um, I think I have that quote here, too. C.S. Lewis says in uh, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, which was the sequel to Screwtape Letters, he said... Our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Would it not break the heart if God said to us, It is true, my child, that your breath smells and your rags drip with mud and slime. But we are charitable here, and no one will upbraid you with these things nor draw away from you. Enter into the joy. Should we not reply, With submission, sir, and if there is no objection, I'd rather be cleaned first. It may hurt, you know. Even so, sir. Uh-huh. I'd rather be cleaned. You know, the most important thing we will ever do is die. And we're all going to go to the exit interview. We're all going to go to the exit interview, you know. All right, question number three. Ah, this is a good one. Why does the church display and venerate relics? 
Ah, relics. Gruesome, nasty, bloody things. <clears throat> well, relics are a short form um, for the relics of the saints. You know, we're, we're relics of the saints, um, and that principally signifies the, according to the documents of the church, sig- signifies the bodies or notable parts of the bodies of the saints who has distinguished members of Christ's mystical body and as temples of the Holy Spirit in virtue of their heroic sanctity now dwell in heaven, but who once lived on earth. So a relic of the saint is a, their body or part of the body of these saints who, by virtue of being members of the body of Christ and temples of the Holy Spirit, are now in heaven, but their bodies are, remain here on earth mm-hmm. with us. Yeah, I mean, in 2 Kings chapter 13, a dead man is brought back to life simply by touching the bones of Elijah to him. Elisha, yeah. Yeah. Yep, and it, it's, you know, in the New Testament, it's really, the thought of relics um, is all over the place. I mean, um, in Acts chapter 19, for instance, it's just a handkerchief of Paul that heals people, just touching the handkerchief, or sick people right. are healed as Peter's shadow just glosses over them. That's right. In the book that's of right. Acts, so this, or the touching of the garment of Jesus' garment. Sure. Now that's know, like Jesus himself. But you're right. They don't touch him. She, t- uh, the woman, is cured of hemorrhages just touching uh, the cloak of Christ um, in Matthew chapter nine. So it's um, it's not a foreign idea. It certainly exists in Scripture. That's right. Very good. What a great show. What great questions. Send us more questions, churchdadspodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to answer them. And so in light of um, some of the recent events and um, uh, the crisis that certainly um, is in our church right now, we thought it would be appropriate to offer our own prayer on the behalf of all of the body of Christ. So this prayer is a prayer of Pope Benedict XVI, from his Stations of the Cross. So what a beautiful prayer to pray together um, in light of the storm that we are now weathering. So in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, your church often seems like a boat about to sink, a boat taking in water on every side. In your field, we see more weeds than wheat. The soiled garments and face of your church throw us into confusion. Yet it is we ourselves who have soiled them. It is we who betray you time and time again, after all our lofty words and grand gestures. Have mercy on your church. Within her, too, Adam continues to fall. When we fall, we drag you down to earth, and Satan laughs, for he hopes that you will not be able to rise from that fall. He hopes that being dragged down in the fall of your church, you will remain prostrate and overpowered but you will rise again. You stood up, you arose, and you can also raise us up. Save and sanctify your church. Save and sanctify us all. Amen. name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This is the Church Dads Podcast. Go home and love your families. Church Dads is a regular podcast hosted by Mark Haas and Curtis Ketty. Join the discussion by emailing the dads at churchdadspodcast at gmail.com and follow them on Facebook, facebook.com slash churchdadspodcast. Want to change the world? 
go home and love your family.